Hello, and welcome to this week's The Proteome It Show. This is The Oregon Trail, season three of a special limited series sponsored by US UPO. Hi, I'm Ben Osborne, and I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Neely. And uh, this week's episode features Dr. Parag Malik, who is an associate professor at Stanford and also the co-founder of Nautilus Biotechnology. Yeah, this was, you know, his story of this, you know, would-be astronaut turned transformative scientist who may be the most interesting person we've talked to, as well as the most humble. So definitely give it a listen. Enjoy. Hello, Prague. Thanks for coming today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so we had contacted you a while back to have you on, and, and then you went and won an award from us hupo and that means you're actually talking at us hupo i what was the award that you won i won the gill these things the gill omen computational proteomics award oh right yeah okay super cool yeah that's and and that's one of those that if you look back on the list of people it's like they're great and you're great um it's, and so i guess an that's an astonishing the group of people <laughs> to be associated with and gill himself is such an amazing lovely person so i i just i feel thrilled and like still killing it i mean amazing amazing yes i mean transformed his perspectives on clinical proteomics and how to bring it into the world Uh, he's been so laser focused on it's it's amazing it's really amazing Mm. all right so you're going to be uh it's normally like a morning talk i should probably look at the schedule who knows um but i know it's a it's a ways off but do you know what you're (laughs) i bet you know what you're going to be talking about (laughs) um can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about um, so I actually, I haven't written the talk yet and I thought yeah. I would do something, um, you know, different than my usual research talk for it. Um, in, in part the, what the, I think part of maybe one of the things that I was part of, um, fortunately was bringing some standardization, bringing Proteo wizard in and the story from way back in the day, starting in Rudy's lab with Patrick Pedrioli and, his um, uh, unpacking um, of what was in a thermo raw file um, before it was before you were really able to access those directly. The story of how that evolved and MZ data and MZ XML came about, uh, and so I, I was really hoping to paint a picture of how we got to where we are today, um, and that we have open formats, we have data sharing, um, and some of the silly challenges along the way um, had to start a foundation just so that we could actually have open data throughout proteomics. Um, and then uh, maybe share a few perspectives about some opportunities that we have as a field going forwards and some, some things we, we might want to think about. Man, wow. Okay. First off, I want you to talk about all these things because I don't know them, but I do like, I'm of that generation that had horror stories. Like we had a, <laughs> We had a triple toff mm-hmm. and so Sciex and we had this, oh, I forgot the guy's name, but it was like an un- unofficial reader that would like export these as MGFs and it would like recursively. And then we could use like mascot. Otherwise, mm-hmm. like you had to use Paragon and it was, it was, maybe it was Sean Seymour. I don't remember, but everyone had these like readers and we would like call people up like, Hey man, you got, do you have that APL reader? Like that's in max quant version 1.205. <laughs> And we we like trade them. It was it was like a bootleg converter. It, it was, it, like, that was exactly what it was, and it was such a hindrance to the field because it it was isolated. Everybody had to have a license from the, the vendor themselves, 
getting those licenses wasn't straightforward necessarily. Um, oftentimes there weren't even libraries available to, to read them. You had to go through the vendor software and, uh, and hack around in Visual Basic to make it happen. Um, and uh, we were really fortunate to first have supported MZML as it was coming about and becoming the reference standard for that. And then chatting with the different vendors and saying, hey, can we maybe help with conversion of your formats to MZML? Um, and, and, you know, we, the first one to sign up was Thermo and then, um, uh, and they were just both, it, it was at a time where they were excited about opening up access, but they were also nervous about it. And there were concerns about, um, what would this mean for compliance, um, about people mm. being able to read or write their files. Um, and, uh, and so we went we, and then there was the actual mechanics of how do you actually do it? How do you fold this in? How do you make it easy to use? Uh, and then uh, Syx, Sean Seymour, as you mentioned, was, was was next. And then that really started the train where we were able to, to get Agilent and Waters and Shimatsu. And, uh, and finally, the most exciting moment was when we had all of the major vendors supported and this sort of universal one ring way that uh, you could get access to all of the data, and um, uh, and our, our our paper there was really neat because it actually included authors from all of the major vendors, um, and uh, I don't know that that happens terribly often. It certainly doesn't, right? <laughs> I, I can't think of, of, of another one, right? But um, which was the worst one to to work with, right? Was it, it thermal <laughs> binaries, or was it rights <laughs> from everybody else, or? Um, no, I think, I think, I think the, the first hurdle was really just about the concept of open data, the concept of data being able to be read by anybody, um, whether they had an instrument or not, um, which sounds really obvious today. It sounds like, well, of course you want the data in as many people's hands as possible. But back then... Um, that wasn't the case. It was like, okay, we we want people who have thermo instruments to be able to read thermo files, um, and uh, and so we really had to get over that conceptual intellectual barrier first, and uh, and then in terms of support, I think once we demonstrated the value, we demonstrated like, oh look, there's a whole set of bioinformaticists going to town on your data and creating tools that are, you know amazing and uh, are getting more out of your data than you are that the they saw this incredible leverage and uh, and so everybody joined on from then and what's I mean we keep talking about time and I'm horrible at this again yeah fault our research department but like what so like the the proteo wizard this this paper where they're all together what what is that time period is that 20 are we in the teens? 12, so, 14? so yeah. So the very first Proteo Wizard paper um, was was uh, side by side with MZML, and mm -hmm. so I want to say that may have been two thousand two thousand nine ish, two thousand somewhere in there. Um, mm -hmm. And then yeah, and then the that was the that was the foundation that was laid and uh, really came about because of my student Darren, um, who was just, uh, you know, he was a card-carrying real software engineer and just watching how hard it was to get him into being able to do proteomics 
um, just what tools were available, how hard it was to access the data. We had all these conversations about even if you created these file formats, would it be like Blu-ray where the Blu-ray still ships with a DVD alongside it? Um, and, uh, and so it really started there with just how can we make it so that anybody who wants to start doing proteomics data analysis doesn't have this huge lift. They don't have to figure out how to calculate the mass of a peptide. They just like call the peptide mass function and it figures it out for you. Um, and then how do we get the data in? And so that was the first step. And then the second was getting direct access to the vendor formats. And, and that was, that was, I think you're right. That was in the teens. I mean, and, and I'm going to be quiet, but like, again, we actually don't do research on people and I have a horrible memory. This is huge. Like I actually had to do something. Neos Hupo was like, what were the big things that have happened? And I think more so than any other advance was that was the open was the open software or the open formats. I mean, so like to you and to all these people we're talking about, like, thank you. Because <laughs> I think this was kind of a big deal. Like this is this was like that moment, right? This was the thing that like made us not suck. It, it was like, it was really <laughs> I mean I I think we were we were a piece of a much larger group in the Hoopo um, Protein Standards Initiative and Eric Deutsch and um, there was a lot of work to figure out what the standard should be, what should be in it, how to represent it, how to read it, how to write it, uh, and that was hundreds of people. It was the whole community coming together, and uh, we were just really fortunate to be able to to, to help support it as, as best we could, and and um, really glad it was a fun time to be part of because you did go from this moment where it was hard to have access to data to all of a sudden it being it being just there and a foundation that people expected. Wow. Okay. I, I just want to say that Ben, you, you, your question, I, I just want to show you the tablet that I knew the year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh, man. No, this is, and, and, uh, Prague, I feel like I could almost, uh, and maybe this is a generalization, but I could basically guess how old you are, right? Because I feel like there, it's a generational thing, the open, the open science thing. And, and, you know, and, and, uh, we, we run into it here, you know, the, the number of, I, I can, I could line up our faculty and say that which ones are going to preprint and which ones are going mm -hmm. to just automatically just assume that their data is going to go onto a public repository where it can be reanalyzed and yes. the people that will not. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yes. and I feel like, I don't know what the, what's up with our generation that we're like, Hey, we should just share science. I don't know if what, like, yeah, I, it's interesting to think of it as, as a movement that needed to happen. Um, and, but it, it was, it was, there were, there were people talking about, Hey, we need to deposit data. We, we have examples going way back, things like GenBank that, uh, go back to the seventies, I think. Um, and, uh, and then we have, then we saw the evolution of the PDB RCSB and how much came out of that, how it, that catalyzed the structural genomics efforts and the structure prediction efforts. Um, and Swiss Pro, Uniprot, of course, uh, as huge. Um, but there was a transition where it wasn't just data from large publicly funded projects, human genome project. It was, hey, I did a thing in my lab and there's leverage from other people being able to 
grab that and reanalyze it and mix it with their own data. Uh, and I really believe that that is, um, we spend so much time and effort collecting this data and making sure it's beautiful. And um, there's so much more we can get out of it. And, but, but you're right, that wasn't always the perspective. In, in part, because it was hard. It was hard. It was effort. It, was, yeah. it wasn't clear how to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's big. Where do you put it um, when you're done with it? That thing. So, so honestly, uh, I felt like this conversation, when, when he asked what you were going to talk about, was going to go one of two ways. It was either going to go here or it was going to go to, to Nautilus, right? And I think that maybe some of the, the attention on social media for, for the, winning the award is that, like, oh, wait, wait, is, is this a sign that, that we're... Proteomics is going next gen, right? Um, um, and that's normally what you're talking about right now. How to sim? Yeah, it, it is. So I think I think a lot of people sort of take Proteo Wizard and open open things for granted. They might not even know that it's associated with my lab um, or came out of my lab. Raising, raising my hand right here. <laughs> I'm even on like weekly phone calls with them because of PSI. <laughs> Oblivious. <laughs> Keep going. No, I mean, it, last year it was downloaded sixty five thousand times. Um, yep. and, uh, yeah. but now around 800 of those were me losing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no doubt. <laughs> Where did I put that? <laughs> and, and so I, I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of people, um, you know, I, have been in the community for a long time, but I've really been, um, a supporter and a champion, um, trying to help proteomics just as a field. And, um, and so I think, uh, people aren't always aware of of how you've contributed and that's great like that's what you want you want to be able to be helpful um and supportive of a field um and so uh certainly i think what nautilus is doing is really exciting and i think it's going to be incredibly complementary to what we're doing with mass spectrometry um, in proteomics um and i i wear both hats and i i love both hats and, and for people who aren't familiar, um, I, I, there's a lot of emerging proteomics technologies. Yeah. Nautilus is? <laughs> so Nautilus is a single molecule based um, protein quantification platform. Um, the, it works with intact um, or non-digested um, proteins. And um, the way it works to measure proteins is completely different than um, than standard mass spectrometry-based approaches. It uh, looks a lot more like DNA sequencing. It has an optical readout instead of uh, a mass spectrometric readout. Um, and uh, the, ultimately, we anticipate that it should have a, uh, our platform anyway, is, was designed for incredible scale, measuring billions of individual molecules so that you really could match the scale of the proteome and uh, do it one molecule at a time. Got it. Okay. Well, I didn't know how much we were supposed to talk about that, but I did want to touch on that because there's just, you know, it, it's, it, it's an exciting time to be us, right? There's lots of emerging technologies and it's like, okay, which one was this one again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think they're, they're, they're very differentiated from each other. And I, I personally very much view them as complementary in the same way that, you know, Kumasi gels and Silverstein gels exist together. Uh, you know, the Western didn't 
didn't, you know, kill the Eliza. Um, they're, they're just different, depending on the question you want to ask, you pick the right tool to ask that question. And so um, I, I'm excited that we're entering a phase where we have new emerging technologies where, you know, on one side, we have things like fames really coming to the forefront. And, um, and then on the other hand, we have these, these, you know, spatial platforms. And then, then we have the single molecule based platforms and sequencing platforms. And it's, uh, it's a pretty neat renaissance, I think, for, for proteomics. Yeah, no, good. It's a good time. <laughs> it should be fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, to my mind there, this is really a third wave in a way that we had that sort of very first wave where, where mass spec based proteomics was coming to the forefront. You had things like the LCQ um, for folks who remember it. Uh, and then you, know, you had the wave where you had the, the really fast, um, you had the Orbitrap FT slash the really fast TOFs um, coming to the forefront. And I think this is a third wave that we're seeing. Um, and, uh, you know, things like the Timstoff and Astral and, and these single molecule methods. Cool. Oh. Um, okay. I feel like I could totally talk about, I mean, even going back right. to the other stuff, like the whole time, but, um, this is the part where we like to switch over to kind of your, your origin story. And I know, you know, the story of Proteo Wizard and all these things is probably part of you, but, but like more like the story of like Park. Like you, how, how did you get here? Um, you can go back, you can go back to like your six and like, you got mad cause somebody handed you one thing in one language and one in another. And you're like, no universal, like, I'm joking. I don't know what that would be, <laughs> but tell it as you wish, go back as far as you want. How'd you get here? Uh, well, I, I got here because I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, <laughs> So my wife, wait, hold on. that's, that's, I get that. My wife still applied to astronaut. Like she was like the last applying person. So that I, I chuckled, but I know you go yeah. for it. Go. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, 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 as recently as the, you know, not the round that happened just now, but the round before that I did apply, uh, to the astronaut training program and, um, and did reasonably well, but ultimately wasn't selected, um, which was a, a bummer. So it, it, there are many people who, when they're they're five, they're like, I want to be an astronaut. And then by the time they're five and a half, they've moved on to being a fireman or a, you know, a cowboy. Um, and uh, and my I I was really serious about it. And I, I loved space. I loved the concept of being an astronaut. I loved all of the aspects of the job, the teaching, the sharing science with the world. Um, and so in, so yes, as an elementary schooler, I loved space in high school. Um, I went to space camp, um, or, Oh, wait, with, with like the one in, in like North Alabama, uh, the one in Alabama and Huntsville. Yeah, I, went, I went to that one. Was it before, or after the movie? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, um, well, so uh, the movie made it popular. Well, Sorry, okay. okay. <laughs> what what movie? What movie? Osborne. What space, space camp? camp. Go watch you should it. know this. There, I know there is a movie. I'm just not sure when it came out because I was okay. I was going to space camp. It was a dream to go to space yes, camp. Yes, wow. absolutely. Um, so to be go clear, on. I did technically go to Space Academy level two, um, which is the fourth. <laughs> so space camp is for like middle schoolers. Academy level. I, that one. was me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so um, and 
and it was it was a thing where it was expensive and we couldn't really afford it. So I actually had worked summer jobs um, at the county fair and other places to be able to pay to go to space camp. Um, and uh, and it was this amazing transformative experience. And um, while I was there, one of our counselors was talking about about space flight and missions to Mars. And that was my life plan as I was supposed to go to be on the mission to Mars. Um, unfortunately, mission to Mars hasn't happened yet. So I had to come up with a backup plan. Uh, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, and so uh, one of the, one of the counselors was talking about long-term space flight and the calcium cycle and degradation. And uh, they mentioned that you couldn't just, it was hard to regulate. And so what we really needed were, designer proteins with new structures that could be really specific. And, uh, and so who is this counselor? I this really wish I, counselor. I really <laughs> wish I knew, but they, they changed <laughs> my life. They, wow. They're like, you should go study protein structure function. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, I had an amazing high school teacher who came from a molecular biology company and an amazing computer science math teacher. So, all through high school, I was getting lots of, uh, I was excited about biology, biochemistry. I was excited about computing. And then I was thinking about space and protein folding and, um, as every high school student does, um, Anyways, yeah, uh, no, you went to a much better school district than me. Where is this? Is this California? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was, I was, it was really, I, I was super lucky. I was super lucky. And, uh, and so then in college, I, um, I, I already was, I, I was faced with a choice actually. So I went and, uh, and chatted, was looking for an undergrad research opportunity. And, um, uh, and I remember I was, I was chatting uh, with some folks, this is at WashU, and, uh, they're like, well, do you want to be on the DNA side or the protein side? And I'm a freshman in college. What do I know? Um, but I said, you know, I want to, I, I mean, proteins seem like they, they do all the work. Um, I want to be on the protein side. Um, and I think that choice, that, that like that one sentence choice to a potential undergrad research advisor um, was how I ended up becoming a protein person. Um, <laughs> Which could go down to this Ridiculous. random counselor in like North Alabama. Yes. Like, <laughs> exactly. Insane. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I started studying protein structure and, uh, um, as an undergrad, I actually had two totally separate projects, um, as undergraduate research theses. One was, uh, was studying the international space station. And it was a computer science project about, uh, about remote sensing. Um, uh, cause you had this problem at the time that, there were all these systems on board the ISS and you didn't have the bandwidth to get all of that sensor data of just, is this, is it working? Is it functioning back down to earth? So how do you know that the ISS isn't malfunctioning when you actually don't have, you know, it was like a 7,600 baud modem was the amount of data you could transfer from ISS to ground. And, uh, and so how do you, figure out if the ISS is working, if you actually can't monitor all the systems all the time. And, uh, and so that was one of my research projects and the other one was in protein structure. Um, and as it turns out, both of them were really important because that problem of how do I figure out if something is working or not working without being able to sample all of it 
as it turns out, that is actually the biomarker discovery diagnostics problem. <laughs> um, so we were doing <laughs> we were doing diagnostics on the International Space Station, which was awesome. And uh, and then in my other life was doing protein structure prediction with uh, with Jay Ponder. So um, yeah, and then from there, what was my I had a chemistry teacher who said, "Hey, uh, I asked him. I, I'm thinking about going to grad school and." Um, where should I go? And he wrote down a list of five names. And um, I still have that yellow piece of paper with those those names on it. And uh, one of them was David Eisenberg. He's like, these, these folks are nice and they do great science. I was like, okay, super. So I applied to those schools, um, met with Dr. Eisenberg, just loved, 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 loved um, him and his lab and what he was studying. And it was, it was at that time of, um, really thinking about large scale protein structure function studies and trying to predict protein structures for whole proteomes. And, um, uh, and it was also about that same time that, that mass spec proteomics was really uh, coming about. And um, Rudy and Matthias both came to UCLA to give a seminar. And I had asked Dr. Eisenberg, Hey, who should I think about doing a postdoc with? And he said, well, these, these, these folks are both great. They're going to be here in a few months. You should chat with them. <laughs> and, uh, um, and was again, just really fortunate to be able to, to join Rudy's lab at a, at a really pivotal time, um, in, in the field. And so I, that, that's pretty much how I got here. That's, <laughs> so it all started with, as you said, a, a camp counselor in Alabama. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I just, I mean, again, I don't want to like put my story on yours, but like, I, I re like, I remember that I had to save up for like two years, it's like $600. I remember that was like, and, and then I went, but my counselor didn't say, you know, it's all about these designer proteins. Like, <laughs> like I was, we were just Reddit. I'm an 11 year old boy, like running around doing, yeah. you know, like doing the G's, but like, you're in a different place yeah. and get this moment and, and you're like on this trajectory yeah, I, it was, I love it. It was it was so important, and um, and even when I was getting into proteomics and I was thinking about my next step after grad school, um, it was my sister really who was key. Um, she sent me. Uh, my sister's eleven years older than me, and uh, a, a surgeon and um, and and researcher, and um, she sent me some of the early biomarker papers um, uh, and said, "Hey, it looks like." this is going to be amazing for, for, for clinical care. And, you know, this was the early stuff that um, I now teach people not to do. Uh, but still it, it, it was the concept that, Hey, you could really get a snapshot of a person by measuring a drop of blood in their whole proteome. And, um, uh, and that was, that was actually really important in me choosing to go into mass spec proteomics was the concept that you could measure physiologic state and you could do it at multiple time points and you could, you could do it incredibly deeply. And of course, plasma proteomics is really hard, but I didn't know that then. Um, and, uh, and if you think about it from the astronaut perspective, if you wanted to study the difference between astronauts uh, in space over time versus people on the ground, how cool would it be to take their proteomes and see all of these changes? And in, in, in like in your 
like so that international space station analogy you're taking like you're pre is it that you're appreciating that you don't know things like like i'm envisioning again like inner space because now yes. like we are our own space but you can't tell it all that's right I mean, that's right you can't you can't measure everything all at once and so you have to make inferences about what's happening um on incomplete information and so this is a classic set of problems, um, remote sensing problems, um, where you can't, you have, you can't measure everything and you have to do it from far away. So if you want to know what's happening in the liver, you, you know, you can't go and look at every cell in the liver. So how do you figure it out based on the minimal subset of information that you're able to get? You, you kind of blow my brain. On. I, I've, I've been doing this too long and I've never thought about it like that. All right, go back. Yeah, right. so, so what were you in, in undergrad? Is this computer science and, and chemistry or what were your majors? Uh, yeah, so I, I had a little bit of a wandering path. Um, I, uh, I started off uh, for one day, I was a bioengineering major. Um, uh, and then I decided that I, I didn't really, uh, that the program at WashU at the time um, didn't have enough bio or engineering. So I became a, a biochemistry through the chem department um, and a computer science major. Um, and then somewhere around there, there was a math major that I was attempting to do, but I, I ran out of time and had to graduate. So I, I didn't quite finish that one. But yeah, so it was it was always this intersection of, of biochemistry and computer science. Is, and is that where you picked up the coding? And, for and sure. Everything? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and really, I think the, the thought process of thinking about algorithms and complexity, and, um, uh, and I, I actually think that, that that view that I gained in my undergraduate research project around information theory and information transfer really affects the way that I look at our biomarker discovery challenges. And um, so my computer communications classes where we were learning about the internet and IPv6 and things like that actually really shape the way that I look at problems in, in general, uh, mass spec problems, uh, data, data problems, biomarker problems, cancer diagnostics problems, uh, that, that information theoretical lens, that signal transfer lens, um, I think applies very generally. Okay. So, so as an associate professor and, a co-founder of a company big enough that, that we all know about it. Um, you're, you're, you're busy a lot, but what are you doing when you're not in the lab? When your hobbies, et cetera? Uh, I might have one or two hobbies. Um, they, uh, or professions as the case may be. Um, so I've, I've always been a, a person who believes in, in getting as much into life as you can. And so um, alongside my, life as a professor and as a phone founder um i've actually also worked as a professional circus performer and magician um I've... like what what part of the circus what are we talking uh we're talking like... juggling stilt walking fire eating um <laughs> but like aerials really uh, no, so I'm mostly a ground performer. I can, okay. I can do a little bit of fabric, but, um, but I am dominantly a ground performer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, little bits of tumbling. Um, wow. Did you say fire? I said fire eating. Yep. Fire eating. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I mean, I do also juggle torches and play with other fire tools, but I'd say my, 
what about like sword eating or is that kind of drifting more towards the other side? No, no, no. I mean, that's Kearney. I mean, Kearney and Circus are, are second cousins. Um, I, I don't actually do sword swallowing. Um, I, well, I do a, I do a cheap hack of a magic trick that looks like I'm doing a sword swallowing act, but it's really a gag. Um, <laughs> I, that's, I, I went to, again, the, the third cousin is like, I just went to the cabaret show the other day and like, they were like incredible. You know, it was all like, you know, these silks and like one dude had like a ring that he was like going around in. Amazing people. I, I love, I love the circus and magic communities. They're, they're filled with these just really talented, creative, um, very intentional, very detail oriented, um, and also artistic people. It's so much fun. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, I'd say that's my, my largest, my largest hobby. I've had other, other hobbies. Uh, I used to be a spin instructor. I, um, I worked as part of a pop-up restaurant for a while. Um, I mean, there's so much cool stuff in the world. Okay. <laughs> how, how, how does one get trained in circus performing? <laughs> um, so, so it started off, uh, I, I guess, Two, two journeys. So first was as a kid, I dorked around, um, which is normal, uh, but I was terrible, utterly terrible. Uh, in college, my roommate used to um, juggle in Renaissance fairs and was um, really active. So we started a student group called Students Against Gravity. Um, we failed, um, but we tried very hard. And so we would juggle all over campus and um, and, uh, and then when I moved to LA for grad school, there's a place in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle, which is a magician's guild. Um, really special. If you're ever in LA, let me know. Uh, it's members only, or you can get in if you're invited by a member. And um, they have classes there that you can take. And so I, I, for passing my quals, I promised myself that I would, I would sign up for, um, for magic lessons there. And that really took me to another level of taking this very seriously. Um, and yeah, and it sort of started off that I, you know, over time you get pretty good, um, you work on your own. And then these are both circus and magic are trades. So you apprentice yourself to someone and you, um, and you often have to audition to have someone take you on and be your mentor. Um, and so, uh, so in my postdoc, I, uh, so in LA, I took on magic, magic mentors, different different mentors, uh, and then um, auditioned in Seattle to have a mentor uh, and was very fortunate to, to, to get one. And so then over time, you start to you start to get better, you start to get better. People are like, oh, hey, I have a I have a thing. Can you like come and, you know, juggle for a minute? And then over time, they're like, oh, you know, I have a club opening. And so would you juggle in our nightclub? Um, sure. Uh, and then you, you start to wow. have these experiences. And you, f- you face a choice where like, okay, I could stay a really good amateur or I could kick it up a notch and become an exceedingly bad professional. Um, uh, and the things that you need to learn at that point are, are not about the tricks. They're not about technical skills. They're about presentation and performance and movement and character and um, improv. And so it took a lot of classes like that. And then um, I, yeah, and uh, I think it was, so it was a combination of having really great mentors, just like we do in science. And um, and there there are schools. There's the circus school in Seattle, Sanka. There's a great one in Los Angeles. Tallahassee. Yeah. Uh, so, Tallahassee. Big one. Mm-hmm, Tallahassee. Um, 
in, uh, <laughs> in, in Canada. So, uh, so there are places that you can go for didactic training. The San Francisco school of circus arts is one of the better ones. I went there um, in, in college um, as well. And so it was, it was this parallel journey where I had science going on and circus magic going on. I, I love it. it. You know, again, back to the show, I just saw like this person was like, she trained for four years to learn this art of like, basically she hung from her hair. Oh, yeah. It was like, she went to like Eastern Europe and like trained mm-hmm. for four years and she's still training. I'm like, oh my God. So, so you had this moment, you're like, well, I'm revolutionizing the field of proteomics, but maybe I should go to like Budapest and like, <laughs> like get really good. <laughs> like, I mean, you, you, you absolutely, it is, it is a commitment. Um, you know, you'll hear about, so for instance, when you're working on, um, on balancing something on your nose, which is a totally ridiculous thing to do. And you look silly doing it. But the people who are really good at it, they there's a training program that starts with like a feather and then works your way down to like a spoon. Um, and the, you know, the moment of inertia of a spoon is really small relative to a light feather. But there's a program that you you work on and handstands, people will you know sit there for, 20 minutes um, staring at a spot in the ground um, to really work on perfecting their handstands for hand balancing acts and things. Wow. Okay. No, um, not what I was expecting you to say, um, but but, I think that what we do find a lot of interesting hobbies and scientists as we're going through things. And I think it's just maybe, uh, I think, I I think there's a narrative that, that scientists are this really narrow thing. And, but the reality is scientists are people and it's just one of our many dimensions. We're allowed to be circus performers. We're allowed to be chefs. We're allowed to, you know, uh, go out on week on weekends and look at the flowers or those are the, we are, as it turns out humans and we exist around a distribution. Absolutely. And we've found, I mean, it is, you know, like everyone needs that other outlet. I mean, I do think science is way more creative than people outside of science probably realize, but you do have, I mean, we've had a lot of climbers, multiple ceramics, um, I'm sure some artists, you know, like it's, it's a thing, you know, definitely bakers, yes. um, you're hundred percent the first, you know, circus magic person, but do you, but is it still that kind of like, it's, is it itching that other itch or is it providing that release you know, like, I mean, I guess that's kind of the other question. Like sometimes, I mean, I love my job and I kind of hate my job, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so okay. then like my hobby would be the thing I kind of need to be doing instead. But but then sometimes it's a release. Like, is it kind of all those to you or both? Or, you know, I think I think it. I guess it's 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 all of those things. I think when I would have a really hard problem, Rudy remembers this because he used to laugh at me. Um, and when I when I couldn't figure it out. I would go down to the to the park near us, Gasworks Park, and just like juggle for an hour, and um, and then I wasn't necessarily thinking about the problem directly, but there was something about it that was very meditative, and there was a background process happening, and and I would come back and I'd have figured it out, and so mm-hmm. it helped my science as well. So I think it's I I do think it is tempting to get locked into a box and be like, I am a scientist. I am one dimensional, but I, 
and and there are people who sit their entire world and that's that's great if that's how they're most productive and how how they're most fulfilled um for me i love diversity i love you know i love tapas when we go out to eat because i get to try lots of little things <laughs> um and so for me i i just i've always appreciated how all the different elements of things come together and they shape your perspective the fact that um you know, I went to space camp when I was in high school, shapes my perspective of how I do my science. And I think that diversity enriches our entire community because we can be approaching the same problem, but all of our history is going to impact how we're going to go about it, how we're going to interpret it, how we're going to interpret what we see. And so it, 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 it really enriches the entire approach to science because it's, and so I just think it's essential. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, again, we, we could probably talk about this for another oh, sure. hour, yeah. um, but, but we have to again. So a slight thing that we do for this one specifically is we ask people if they know anything about Portland, would they recommend something about Portland? Oh. Have you ever been to Portland? I've been to Portland. Uh, we have great collaborators at OHSU. Um, one of my close friends from the Aversol lab, Mark Flory, lives in Portland. Um, so oh, he's going to be on the show. Oh, at yeah. some point. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah. Ask him about kite surfing. Um, okay. Um, right. As well. Uh, the what I would I would say about Portland. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a slightly food direction with Portland. Um, really exceptional place to get Liège waffles. <laughs> Um, so if you're not familiar, I, I only know that name from my cycling race. So what the heck is that? There are different types of waffles. Um, and this is a subclass of waffles that they're a little sweeter. You typically don't need to put syrup on them. Uh, and they're, um, they are delicious and slightly caramelized, crispy. Yeah. Where do where do I get them? Like, is it just uh, a thing? Like Portland? Just like a thing. There are lots of there are lots of cool nice. cool waffle waffle places around Portland. What? And you did you say Liège? Like the like Belgium? Like yes. Liège? Yes. Okay, so it is like the cycling race. Okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry, anyone listening <laughs> hates me. Um, okay, cool. Thank you. That's a great yeah, suggestion. I love it. Um, but just remember that they are already sweet to begin with. So do not immediately douse them in syrup or else they might be a little too sweet after that. Even if you're from the South? Um, if you're in the yeah. South, then please feel free to douse them in syrup. <laughs> yeah, you need a lot of syrup. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it. You know, they will be bad doused in syrup. I'm just saying, depending on your personal sugar tastes, you may yeah. want to. Yeah. Ben Valley took good. me to a Waffle House in South Carolina the first time we... Uh, out, so <laughs> as you should yeah, i think i imagine there might be some syrup involved <laughs> just just go straight to the k-rep like don't even pretend it's syrup do you ever do, you know like the k-rep oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so so the way, way we've been wrapping this this season up is is by uh asking what, what are you most excited about uh, in terms of where proteomics is going what are the developments and the directions that you know, motivate you well, I'm, I I have always believed that proteomics should not should should just be how people do science. I mean, proteins do everything. They make they make us go, and so I'm excited about seeing proteomics leave 
the proteomics community and just be the way that biologists do science. And I think we're seeing more and more appreciation for the value of the proteome throughout the world. And I think our tools are getting more powerful. Um, I do think the single molecule methods um, are going to be incredibly powerful. And, um, and also, uh, so I think anything we can do to reduce the barrier to everyone in the world saying like, oh yeah, go get the proteome. Um, that's where we need to be. Wow. That, that's really well said. <laughs> and okay. So, so if you go back to your freshman year and you had said DNA. <laughs> uh, do you think that you would have this same perspective, right? How much of that is the, the influence of your path there, right? At that, at that fork. Uh, so I think, so I was at AHSG recently and had a really interesting experience chatting with a number of geneticists. And, um, you know, I would, I would call myself many things, cancer biologist, biochemist, et cetera. But, um, but I actually, uh, and I think a lot about multiomic integration, but I always think about it in terms of function. And, and, and so it was really interesting at this meeting where, you know, you talk to people and be like, okay, well, so, you know, how do you think that, that SNP, that, uh, that variation, that GWAS thing that you observed, what happens to it? How does it actually lead to the phenotype that you're seeing? And more often than not, the answer I got was, well, that's really complicated. Um, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to look at that. And, and I was surprised. It, it was, it was almost like studying the proteome was, um, was this daunting, overwhelming, um, um, there was, there was a, just a barrier because it was so complicated and it is complicated. I mean, proteins are complicated, but, uh, but they also, so I could imagine if I had, if I had said DNA, I might be in the camp of, wow, that's complicated as opposed to in the camp of you have to have this information. Impossible to say, right. But yeah, but you know, I feel like I'd also be a professional circus performer and have left science entirely. Or in five years, he's on an ass, he's on a rocket. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> this this was a lot of fun, Prague. Um, but I think we're we're running up on time, so I think I have to thank you. Um, uh, absolutely looking forward to your talk in in Portland, and and uh, looking forward to meeting you um, again. Uh, we passed yes. an elevator in Mexico. <laughs> you had a fantastic suit on. I'm very jealous. No, you know, I, I like to be sparkly. Just just yeah, distracts people from the bad science. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's, this has been really fun today, and it was really great chatting with you both. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. So uh, this is part where we do the credits. The, the views expressed are solely ours and not our employers. We want to thank U.S. Hupo for sponsoring this series. We want to thank Johannes for the intro and exit song. Kaylee Kirkwood for our artwork. And you can email us, and we're going to read them on the air. But write theproteometshow at gmail.com. Please like, subscribe, give thumbs up, and... Yeah, keep listening wherever you listen. Thanks. Bye.